0: Welcome to the Nahrain Network podcast series. Today we're with Dr. Hussar Mehdi, conservation expert. It's good to have you here. And could you tell us a bit about your work? You're one of the few people who work on examining, exploring Islamic conservation.
1: Well, thank you for having me on this uh, podcast, Mahir. Uh, I am a conservation architect and I, I dedicated quite a, a big period of my career into the question of conservation of built heritage. I'm Egyptian, so I started practicing in Egypt and I was quite astonished to find that the biggest threat we used to consider for heritage is the local community. Even in the cases of an Islamic building surrounded by Muslims, we still would conserve it, build a fence around it and state a guard. So I I embarked on this very long journey of the question of what is conservation, for whom we do this, and how. And I did a lot of studies in that area in a nutshell. I think that we basically, in the Middle East in general, we have such a heavy colonial legacy that we are basically continuing the practices that were in colonial times without questioning much why we are doing this and how we are doing it. So I began to look into the language, I mean, to to talk to people about their heritage. We professionals very often use either English or French or even Arabic terms, but not really relating to the everyday talking of the people. So I began to look into the question of terminology and uh, Arabic uh, terminology and how that we can, uh, we can find the language that we can speak and be precise and be scientific, but also be understood to refer to the same value system that local communities do. So I had been working on terminology for conservation, Arabic terminology for, for conservation for quite a while. I produced a, a, a glossary but I'm also working on that glossary to to, to uh, further extend it. Parallel to that I've been looking into the theory of conservation and how we are really uh, practicing this activity without really questioning why we are doing this and uh, according to what values. So in the in the Middle East very often it is uh, it is seen like a high culture notion a bit like the ballet or classical music or something That we 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 inherited from the colonial period, our elite continued to have it as a and practice it and enjoy it as a cultural kind of activity, but not really anchoring it to our own history and our own culture or cultures in different localities. Digging into the history, the intellectual history of Arab writers and Islamic practices, I found out a lot of very interesting concepts that we as professionals uh, in, the, in, the, in the field of heritage we don't refer to. For example, uh, pre-Islamic Arabs had a very strong tradition of poetry in front of the ruins. Atlal, it's called in Arabic. And this is actually a continued after when Muslims went to countries like Iraq and Egypt and Syria, Turkey, where there are a lot of ancient civilizations remains, this poetry had been also composed to reflect on the pyramids, on uh, uh, Palmyra, on Kisra, and so on. So we have an intellectual uh, heritage of more than 14 centuries of poetry, uh, admiring or reflecting On the ruins, something like that is not referred to in in, in my field as a professional conservation architect, for example. Other issues like, uh, for example, in the Quran, there are so many verses instructing Muslims to to travel and visit the remains of ancient civilizations and reflect uh, on the bigger picture of life there are more than 20 verses in the quran about that so it's it's um, it's very strange that actually somebody destroys an ancient ruins in the name of islam and actually uh, people buy that uh, but the reality is that the way conservation is practiced and the way heritage is presented in the media and in uh, you know cultural circles it's always this high culture kind of uh, elitist notion that has nothing to do with the Arab or Islamic or even folk culture. I mean, again, the folk culture, for example, in Arab countries like uh, all these uh, different, uh, uh, you know, epics that are told uh, in coffee shops with uh, rababa or with some uh, poetry and some singing like uh, Abu Zayd al-Hilali and uh, Antara bin Shaddad and uh, Zahir and all these uh, folk tales. They are actually, and the Arabian Nights, they include so much uh, reference to uh, ruins and to ancient buildings in a positive way uh, which tells something about uh, the the value of heritage in pre-modern time. But the problem is that we had this incredible kind of break away from uh, pre-modern period and uh, the way modernization had been introduced throughout the Middle East is basically Uh, more to say, Europeanization or Westernization. And that's really one aspect. And of course, the the establishment of the modern uh, state, nation states, uh, relied heavily on the ancient uh, history of each of these nations. And uh, because that was according to the European model of establishing a nation state. Uh, So for example, Egypt, uh, you know, the. Uh, the pyramids and sphinx and so on are the symbol of egypt of modern egypt uh, rather than having digging into all these uh, you know centuries of traditions different levels uh, intellectual levels of traditions about the pyramids we are now dealing with them as an image that represents egypt almost like a, a brand kind of thing uh, and that that makes it so shallow and of course Mass tourism and the illicit trade in, in antiquities bring in, you know, the, the dollar sign in the eyes of the people, especially in, uh, with poverty. So the whole thing is, is diluted into a commodity uh, or a place where, uh, you know, tourists will come and you can make some money from and not anymore part of the sense of place or the, you know, or the identity of place as it used to be before. Also, uh, the, the real challenge for me as a conservation architect, how to bring all this to practice because I'm, I'm a practical man. I'm an academic, but I'm a practical man. And I wish to to get this ground to the way we preserve buildings, the way we, we uh, present buildings and deal with them. You know, I, I once was uh, in, in Cairo, you know, uh, working on his, in historic Cairo. And I asked a, a man, I told him, you know, uh, what about if I give you a nice flat somewhere else? Would you please move out? Uh, would you accept to move out? Because, you know, the government, uh, they want to create this uh, open-air museum of historic Cairo and uh, take out, you know, all the all the residents. And he said, no, I wouldn't go. I said, what about if I give you a flat in Zamalek, in the best neighborhood of, of Cairo? He said, no. And I said, why? And he said, because, you know, here, this is my home. This is, and he's talking about the street. You know, this is my area. And I said, uh, well, it will be your area there also. He said, no, you know, here, I don't, I walk without money in my pocket, without ID, I can enter any of these houses in the, uh, in the street that we were talking about. Because as a child, I used to play. I, all these places, they know me. I would enter any house to eat and maybe sleep or whatever and they would know me and my parents and my grandparents and I know every one of them. And if I go out for a few days, my elderly mother, any, everybody will take care of her. So there is this invisible aspect of the historic city that, for example, we as conservation uh, professionals, we don't see because that's, the, that's, that's uh, you know, that doesn't, is not part of our mandate so again it's kind of the way we practice conservation or the way we deal with it as basically uh, some sort of mechanical uh, uh, operation of uh, you know consolidating a building or or cleaning it or whatever but uh, so much of the intangible we ignore so much of the of the meaning uh, for the local communities sometimes you actually uh, you know, it's almost like killing somebody but, uh, but mummifying his body or something. Sometimes the building itself loses its meaning and becomes alien to the people who lived all their lives and all their ancestors around this building and was part of their identity. But not anymore because we, br- we bring in a, a different way of interpreting the building without really, you know, uh, getting into the, the narrative, the local story and the human aspect of things. So that's, you know, it's it's partly academic concern and part practical and uh, professional. So uh, for example, uh, last year I I, uh, organized a a workshop uh, in Cairo about uh, historic mosques, trying to address the question, you know, how a historic mosque finds the balance between the function of a mosque as a religious building and for the locals, and uh, it being a a touristic venue for international tourists. And it was quite revealing to find out that actually most of the problems are caused by the governmental agencies and the professionals. And actually both tourist groups and local community uh, are really, you know, They are suffering from the the arrangement. The way the whole thing uh, organized is managed in a way as if the locals are some sort of dangerous crowd and the tourists are such a precious thing that they are surrounded always by police and uh, you know uh, to be protected and so on. And the whole experience through the baby with the dirty water because you don't feel anymore that you are in a spiritual place when you enter there. So it's not anymore uh, a mosque that you would enjoy praying in. And it's not any more tourist venue where you could really have a feel of the spirit of this place and how, how it was uh, built and how it used to function and so on. The, the reason for, uh, for this uh, is, is very complex. I mean, partly it's theoretical, but, par- but partly it is the way the institutions are structured, uh, the way the legal system uh, works to protect buildings, uh, and uh, historic areas, and it differs from country to country uh, in in countries where like in Iraq and in Syria, where there is so much so many different layers of heritage and so many different groups also who uh, have different views, each group has its own view uh, of this heritage but though the concept of shared heritage is well-known now, and it is quite propagated by UNESCO and uh, is encouraged uh, by everybody. But the reality is, on the ground, it's politics that really, and and, and power is really what dictates, uh, you know, who says what happens uh, to heritage, how heritage is managed, is conserved, is presented, is uh, interpreted. And I think, you know, I think in the Middle East, one serious issue is really, the local participation and the political environment, the lack of democracy, where, uh, you know, the, the, where, for example, in Egypt, although there is no many different groups or sects, ethnically or so on, but because of the, because of the top-down decision-making, it's so difficult to really bring in any other views except the formal governmental uh, views. In other uh, countries like Syria and Iraq, where there are a lot of uh, like a mosaic of different ethnicities and interests and so on, with a healthy political environment, one layer and one meaning of the building will be always favored uh, on the expense of so many other layers and meanings and that is such a shame because even for those who are trying to impose that meaning or the layer once once there is no tension between different groups they would they would see the loss because all these layers none of them cancels or you know conflicts with the other this is this is part of the story and it's a very rich story one also important issue that i found always difficult is the way we Arabs, we uh, arab professionals in the field are up towards the western practices that would have been a good idea if we took if we took the whole baggage but what we do is that we we take only the technical issues we take only certain issues uh, and uh, and we ignore the the reality the local context uh, of course so much of so much of this is uh, is affecting the way, the way things are done because the result is that the professional and the specialist very often uh, loses uh, uh, any proper communication with the local community or with the users of this heritage, the owners of this heritage, or the guardians of this heritage because the professional very often speaks a language that is alien to them, refers values that are not really their own values. The, with a worldview, that doesn't mean much to them. So I think uh, there is a need, really, to to readdress the way we look at heritage, the way we conserve it. Uh, But, of course, it's a very complex uh, situation, as I said, because of all these different uh, obstacles.
0: Hossam, we will go back to some of these issues, but could you tell us a bit about what you do exactly uh, and your background? You have a PhD in Islamic conservation, and um, you've just completed also a fellowship in UCL Qatar. Could you tell us about your academic background and also about your experience in the Middle East in this field?
1: Well, I graduated uh, in 1981 uh, as an architectural engineer from Ain Shams University in Cairo. I got an, um, a math, a master's in conservation of historic buildings uh, from uh, the in, 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 the Catholic University of Leuven uh, in Belgium, a PhD from Glasgow University, and the topic of the PhD was Attitudes Towards Architectural Conservation, the case of Cairo, which I uh, later adapted uh, into a book that was published by ICROM and is available uh, online. Since my, I finished my PhD, I had been working mainly as a freelance consultant in the uh, field of uh, conservation of Uh, built heritage. But also I taught in in, in Egyptian universities, uh, taught conservation of uh, built heritage. As a consultant, I worked with many, many entities uh, like UNESCO, ECOMOS, ICROM, World Bank, different and also national and and local ones and NGOs. And it's always about either architectural conservation or urban conservation. Most of my work was in, in Egypt, in Cairo, in Alexandria, Luxor. But also uh, I worked, uh, for example, on the urban conservation of Karak in Jordan, uh, urban conservation of Erbil in Iraq, uh, urban conservation of Salalah in uh, Oman. Uh, also, I uh, I worked for a few years in Abu Dhabi, where I uh, I was leading a team of conservators caring for the heritage. Of the Emirate of Abu Dhabi. I'm also uh, advisor to ECOMUS on the nominations of World Heritage uh, List to UNESCO. So I, I assi- assist them in assessing, evaluating the nomination and the nomination files, the nominated uh, sites to give recommendations to UNESCO uh, regarding uh, their inscription. But also, I work with uh, NGOs uh, in Cairo. That's really my, something that I do with a lot of passion because, you know, in Cairo for the last few years there have been a lot of threats to the heritage because of uh, very aggressive development projects that are not really uh, taking into consideration the damage uh, that is doing to the heritage, particularly the less monumental heritage. I think one of our colonial legacy is that we have this listing system for monuments and we don't have really legal uh, protection for uh, lesser heritage that is kind of like either vernacular or just uh, uh, of heritage value of historic value and not really that monumental but also the urban fabric of the city that is not protected by anything because initially the, the laws were protecting only the monuments so uh, there are a lot all these uh, motorways and uh, flyovers and that are really wiping, you know, wiping so much of the very important heritage fabric in Cairo. That's really a, a big issue. And also, there is all this uh, aggressive uh, development, like they call it uh, Dubai by the Nile, where they are really erasing huge areas, considering them slums, and they are they, they are they are historic uh, fabric, historic urban fabric. Uh, to build, uh, you know, uh, glass towers uh, like similar to the Dubai uh, kind of stuff, you know. So I am I'm working with uh, with uh, local NGOs in Cairo on how to try to try our best to raise awareness and to document and try to put some pressure to prevent this from happening. To try to uh, uh, find a way, of raising awareness, not, not only for the locals, but also more importantly for decision makers and, you know, the, the public opinion. And that's not easy. So uh, that's, that's something that is really, I mean, like destruction is so very, it's very easy, it's very quick in comparison to conservation or uh, building up something and happening very fast in Egypt these days which is at the moment part of what I am really concerned with. So I'm working, for example, at the moment where, you know, uh, on the documentation and evaluation of the historic quarter uh, of Bulak in Cairo. And this is this used to be the, the, the port of Cairo on the Nile. And during the Middle Ages, from the 15th century to the 19th century, this was the center of international trade between East and West, between Europe and the Far East. Uh, so uh, the, all these warehouses where, you know, uh, merchandise were stored and sold, and then through the Nile to the and the Mediterranean uh, were sent to Europe. And uh, goods from Europe were also brought to this area uh, where again, they were sold to, to merchants who would go to the Far East and sell them. So it was very important. Uh, yet at the moment it's not protected and there are all these uh, because it is by the nile there are there are all these uh, you know developers who are really trying to uh, to get their hands on it so i'm i'm working with a with a team of uh, art historians architectural historians to identify the build, the remaining buildings there and the remaining urban fabric Uh, such
0: as streets and open spaces. Can I just ask you, Hossam, how effective do you think the practice of raising awareness? You know, lots of international organizations speak about this. We need to raise awareness. We need to get more local people, local communities to actually take better care of their heritage or world heritage, depending on how it's viewed. What does that actually mean, raising awareness?
1: I think, actually, uh, it is quite tricky, uh, this concept. And uh, in many cases, it is almost like a, a lost cause in many cases, because, first of all, when you talk to the locals, unless you talk their language, it's only ticking a box. And their language doesn't mean, the, I'm not saying Arabic, I mean, like, if somebody, uh, let's say, doesn't have a, a health unit, and they're, they're, they're worried about their health, and they're worried about their uh, security, for example, uh, you know, they, they will, it's so difficult to get uh, somebody who, who has these worries to worry about heritage. Because, you know, you have the hierarchy of priorities. All of us, we have it. If I'm worried too much about my health or my children or uh, education or security, you know, the, the heritage will not come first. That, that's one issue that you cannot, you cannot claim to raise awareness with people who, while you are not really sensitive to their priorities and their issues. And that's a huge issue because very often, somebody will come in with a raising awareness program and they are not not specialized in something to do with health or education. So the fact that people are dying out because of some silly disease that with a tablet you can prevent, it's not their business because they are heritage people. For example, i give you an example. I was working with a a foreign team in Luxor over six years, and we were spending millions of pounds on this uh, management planning of heritage, while the the locals, they had no sewage network. So the sewage, uh, they had water network. So the sewage was going into the land, and their agricultural community, so the crops were actually almost poisoned. So that was a huge issue. But all these millions were going to the were going to the archaeology. It was not you cannot spend them or part of that on the, on a sewage system, for example. So the raising awareness, you cannot. So that's one problem. Is that when you are talking about the local community, unless unless it is. The raising awareness is part and parcel of much more interaction that is sensible and sensitive uh, you know and real partnership not uh, just uh, kind of like uh, dropping some uh, some guys to give lectures and uh, some booklets and then uh, tick a box so that's an issue and of course uh, the, the raising awareness also of uh, you know, the, the other groups, uh, like, for example, the, you know, the decision makers and the professionals who are uh, sometimes practicing uh, according to quite old-fashioned uh, way of seeing heritage, that, that is also, uh, can be problematic because, for example, you get somebody who is employed by the state, they get very little salary, so they are always worried, worried sick about money, and then you get, and they were trained according to some 19th century school of archeology or uh, conservation. And you come in and put them into a workshop for a few days to suggest, you know, to, to introduce to them uh, a new way of dealing with heritage. Somebody with this kind of mindset and some with these circumstances, the impact is almost zero. And even if you manage to get to that person, then they work with an institution structure, they, they, they are mandated by certain law. They are dealing with uh, community and local. These things, they, they, they all are part of the, of, the, of the equation. So raising awareness is very tricky. And uh, sometimes it's, uh, there is some very naive uh, uh, idea that, uh, oh, people are not aware how old this is or the story behind that building. If we tell them that, you know, uh, then they will care. Well, yes, yes and no. I mean, yes, it's good that people know the stories and know the value, uh, the archaeological value and the historical value of of the heritage in their vicinity, unless the heritage and its conservation is part of their uh, way of life and their values. It's like introducing, you know, uh, the, the, some kind of uh, classical music piece to a, a traditional community. Uh, they may manage to enjoy it, but once once uh, you, you once they finish listening, it will be over, and that will be it will be over for good because it's not part of their culture and it's not. It doesn't it doesn't weave into their way of life and the way they see things and the way they value things.
0: This goes deep into the concept of, for want of a better term sustainability nebulous concept which is used by everyone now in this field of heritage increasingly in archaeology and what do I mean by sustainability cultural continuity and so one way in which that's that concept has been approached in practice has been through raising awareness and through the notion of community so the community plays an important role if not the most important role? Do you find it problematic that there's this significant focus internationally on a nebulous concept such as community? What exactly is a community when it comes to sustainable heritage? And do we need a more holistic approach that incorporates the state structures of power to the stakeholders of the, the cultural and the political and the social environment that we are speaking about?
1: I think one problem is that, uh, you know, traditional societies, particularly in the Arab region, had always a holistic approach to life, but then came in, uh, you know, this commercialization of, like, for example, the recycling, for example. I mean, in Cairo, for example, the domestic refuse used to be recycled 80%, while In the UK, we are trying to reach 4%. But now they are modernized. And so they are, it's not any more efficient because they are modernized. Because in the past, they used to recycle everything as part of the way of, even the the stuff that was produced was recyclable. The problem is that, you know, like for example, somebody, uh, you know, would have uh, like a a reed mat. Then uh, they are, the community is produced with plastic mat coming from china and they are stronger they are cheaper they are cleaner so no no reed mats are produced anymore but then some somebody ten years later and suggests to the community to try to reintroduce reed mats so what i'm saying is that the problem is that this holistic approach that that the sustainability concept is trying to 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 to, to introduce is actually is part and parcel of the way people uh, live and see life in traditional uh, communities. the problem is that political structure the commercial uh, setup, who are not who are modernized in the sense that they live as they continue to live to a great extent by traditional values, not modern values uh, so you very often you find that in uh, in villages in historic uh, areas of cities where people are not educated according to West, western system they are actually carry on so much of the traditions that are not really a part of the formal you know discourse or uh, some western or at least or globalized if you want to say so you know so for example You know, for example, the the religious leaders will have a huge impact on traditional communities. structure of of the community that can be tribal or can be the extended family. So people who who live like that, their values and their their way of life, I mean, actually, we can learn a lot about holistic approach from them. The problem is that because they are marginalized, and uh, the, they are not part of the mainstream economy or politics or way of doing things. they are we are introducing to them sustainability kind of like uh, packaged in a, in a, in a very uh, certain way. And uh, it doesn't always it doesn't always uh, you know work with with them or, or understood properly by them because the whole philosophy, I mean like in the West or in modern times we come from, different kind of specialized islands that we are trying to bridge together to say this is a holistic approach whereas the traditional mainly inspired by islam but also by other uh, religions and philosophies the whole life is considered with all different aspects overlapping so you don't have you don't have this total separation for example pre-modern times you don't have somebody who is developing and somebody who's conserving within a city. And each of the groups has totally no concern of the other. And there is some sort of struggle, power struggle between them. You know, the developer wants to, to let's say, erase a historic area and build a new uh, um, neighborhood, while the conservator wants to, to preserve all that and doesn't care about the development. What he cares is heritage. In the past and until now, in the minds of traditionally thinking people, you have both as the, the the two sides of one coin. So actually, if the building is good, then you don't demolish it just because you can build a bigger one or a nicer one. It's and that's a form of recycling. So even if the function is not working, you will do you'll find a way of, of reusing the building. So what I'm saying is that the concept itself of or the approach, the way you we have these uh, kind of pigeonholes like development, uh, heritage, modernness, uh, you know, uh, structures and landscape is different than uh, urban scape and so on. That is a, a, a different uh, worldview than the traditional worldview, particularly in the Arab Muslim uh, lands, but also uh, by other traditional communities where you actually all that is overlapping and is working together. You don't think of the heritage separate from development, separate from, uh, you know, health, separate from education. So the concept of itself, sustainability, the way we, we introduce it, actually is quite alien, even for, you know, from the cultural point of view even in modern in modern areas and for the modern mind you know it's lacking so much uh, on the cultural aspect so very often sustainability is based uh, on the economy the environment and uh, society these are the three pillars that sustainability is always introduced but culture is not there spirituality is not there Besides that, these three things are totally different. So even within the, the community of architects, for example, the ones who are working on sustainable, green, eco-friendly buildings are a totally different group than the ones who are working on uh, high-rise you know, towers like Burj Khalifa and whatever, and the, high, the high-tech you know, of the aspects of, of buildings they don't care about, about the environment, whereas the others, they care so much about the environment and they hardly care about the economy. And so this kind of dichotomy or, or dichotomies between so many different aspects of urban life or communal life, then you, you, you bring in that to a community that actually either lives by traditional worldview or lost this but did not acquire the modern one, where the specializations are these different islands. And therefore, it's it doesn't make sense. It's very different. We, we talk about local participation, but how can people
0: participate if they don't really grasp what the whole thing is about? So if indeed that is the case, your perspective of it, then does that mean that we have to, especially in US-European cultural institutions, universities, we have to reconsider altogether how conservation is promoted. Heritage conservation projects that we are seeing in the Middle East, Egypt, in in Iraq. It's these projects that are parachuting in foreign expertise. What do you say about these dynamics? Yeah, I
1: totally agree,
0: Mahir. I think think that
1: there is a a very big problem with addressing tangible heritage and without the intangible there is also a, a big problem in addressing the technical aspects uh, as if you are fixing a car some kind of engine or uh, some kind of antiquity and actually the term antiquities uh, ministry of antiquities uh, department of Antiquities. it tells something that actually there is a dealing with the dealing with the heritage in the middle east because it is it has all these ancient civilizations and because all the biblical stories happened in there, uh, there is always this dealing with, with it as if it's um, uh, potential museum pieces. And even if they are big buildings or even if they are even cities, but it's the, the problem is that not only that intangible is part the, of, the, of the tangible, the intangible is actually the driving force for the tangible without the intangible. The tangible is useless, is meaningless in the eyes of anybody who actually cares beyond the, the, the antiquity kind of vision, the, the antiquity or the museum, uh, museum kind of uh, approach that actually y- y- you would like to, to, to fix it and put it in a glass box. More or less, you know, but actually, this is a living heritage. This is a living uh, culture. And because it is living, you cannot, you know, definitely, no matter how good you do technically, if in the way you actually kill the life out of it, you're doing a huge damage. And that's the problem of the outside institutions when they are too much in a hurry to use. Uh, you know, uh, some images of uh, a fixed uh, heritage uh, resource or, you know, uh, uh, some sort of restored building that used to be, uh, you know, uh, dilapidated or whatever. And it's not only the the damage that's happening to this uh, particular resource, but actually setting the example because these institutions, when they go in, they set an example, they are considered the you know, industry standard, these, the, the uh, you know, uh, cutting edge of the field. So for the local professionals, for the, for the native professionals, for them, okay, this is what we are supposed to do. And it's not, it's not really, uh, it's, it's not, sometimes it, it does more damage than it does good. Uh, and I, I, think, I think one good example of that, if you address vernacular heritage, if you assume for one minute that you are dealing with the vernacular heritage as a technical issue of fixing some buildings uh, that are dilapidated then you are missing the whole point i mean uh, i was discussing uh, within my activities uh, within ECOMOS, i am part of the uh, vernacular architecture uh, scientific committee of icomos and uh, when the when when the The war uh, continued in Syria for so long. We decided we want to do some help, you know, some some technical support uh, to to Syria uh, for their vernacular heritage. They have these beautiful earthen domes, uh, villages of earthen domes in northern Syria. And then I I was shocked to find that actually uh, everybody is talking about documenting them and fixing them. Actually, it is not about the domes. I mean, the mud domes are part of that uh, story, but the real story are those who built them and who keep maintaining them. Because to live in a mud building, you need to maintain it twice a year at least. And the people who lived in there, the way of life, the the the, the, the way they produced bread, the way the different uh, you know skills and the crafts. And so, if these people are now living, uh, you know, somebody's driving a cab in, in Germany. Now when we fix the, the, the mud domes, they will come back. They are going to live in these buildings uh, after living in a high rise. Will they have the, the earthen oven again and live in an earthen building that if it rains heavily, he has to fix it quickly, otherwise it will collapse? I mean, what I'm saying is that it is a living heritage and it continued to be live to be living, because people who lived in them lived according to a way of life and, uh, and they had certain skills and certain values. So unless we address all that together, there's no point in, in fixing the mud domes. If they go back, the first thing they will do is demolish it and build the high-rise uh, reinforced concrete building because that's, that's how they have been You know, in the way. We, we didn't worry too much about the craft because the craft is intangible. It's not tangible. Uh, or about, you know, the way of life, the way people weaved their clothes and the way they did whatever, so that the whole way of life in these villages. So this is, I think, an extreme example because vernacular heritage is really living, is really about the, the way of life. And also it is about the way the community or people interacted with the environment. So usually these buildings are very well adapted to the environment. They use the environment, they use... Uh, building materials from the environment uh, the way the buildings are that are built their performance uh, environmentally is very good with regards to the environment and the whole thing is so it is about the nature it's about the environment it's about the community, it's about the crafts as well as the, the mud the domes of course because it is so complicated it's very easy to you know to kind of like identify uh, an element that you can do tangibly and appears nicely in photographs to in the in the final report of a project and it is tangible it is visually pleasing and then you do it and that's it but the reality is that it's so much more complex than
0: that can i ask you what is the difference between community heritage and world heritage well there shouldn't be a difference
1: but it's, I mean, world heritage is, is a sort of a, a tag or a sort of brand that you give to a, to a building. And uh, by doing that, usually the leadership of the country would would have uh, kind of scored uh, some good goal uh, and uh, look prestigious. But, but the world heritage, I mean, like in essence, the world heritage system is about conservation of this heritage, is about if heritage is, is really valuable for humanity, then if the, if the guardians and the owners of that heritage may not have the technical skills or the, or the resources, material resources or human resources, to actually uh, care for it, then it is a support system. That's the initial you know, uh, purpose of listing a building on the World Heritage List. But of course, it became like a prestigious thing that attracts mass tourism. It attracts uh, funding and so on. But according to the according to the operational guidelines of the Convention of World Heritage uh, by UNESCO in 1972, community participation is important. Community. uh, you know, must be part of the nomination process of uh, to the World Heritage List, must be a part of the management and conservation of the heritage. So, getting the World Heritage tag, I mean, it, it shouldn't be uh, something that's different from the heritage, uh, you know, uh, people's heritage or community's heritage. So, I think, I think. Again, it's to do with politics and to do with uh, power uh, games and so on. Essentially, heritage, heritage, uh, according to the to the World Heritage Convention, regardless of its uh, category, is it international heritage, is it national, is it local heritage, should be mainly managed and uh, you know uh, conserved with the participation of the community, with the people who use it and live in its vicinity and are the guardians of that heritage. But as I said, I mean, again, when you have all these uh, uh, dynamics, includes usually a foreign language, uh, international experts, uh, um, some prestige, uh, political prestige, economic, potential economic benefits by, tourism or by some sort of branding of the place, all these things. Then you are talking about, uh, you know, uneven kind of uh, power struggle. I mean, in front of all this, all this it's very difficult for a community that is not really very uh, conversant in, uh, in the way the dynamic of UNESCO and the heritage community works, would be able to really uh, find a, a foothold within the way, things are happening on the ground, unless, and, unless it is given to them. But it's, it, the, whole, the whole game is really beyond the understanding and the, the way of, of seeing things of these uh, local communities.
0: The pyramids are a world heritage site. Babylon now is also in Iraq, it's a world heritage site. Are the pyramids also a community heritage site? What is the relationship between people locally? and the pyramids. Why are these questions important? Because they're also about sustainability. They're about the people that live close to these World Heritage Sites. This is why it becomes more complex. It's not a straightforward thing to say this is a community site, and this is a a World Heritage Site. Absolutely actually you, it's good that you mentioned the
1: pyramids uh, for example because the pyramid not only because of the listing but because of the international tourist industry now the locality of the of the pyramids is basically people who live on international tourism they live on either guiding tourists selling souvenirs to tourists forging antiquities and selling them as if they are original to, uh, to tourists that's what they do basically the whole village this is what they do why this is happening uh, as i mentioned earlier when you don't have balance of, of the different players then one becomes subservient to the other so when you when the local community local people i mean i'm not really very fond of the community work but when the locals have no power whatsoever. Not only that, they are quite deprived of so many basic, uh, you know, uh, human rights and, and, and needs and so on. And then they are all of a sudden introduced to a very powerful, rich, very opinionated, very different bunch of people. Then they become subservient they are ready to carry the bag for them, they are ready to hire the horse for them, they are ready to sell them anything they want, they, they are happy to translate to them, and the, and with time, this is what you get for the people around the pyramids in Egypt, or around uh, Luxor temple and so on, because the, we, have, we have a whole more than one century of this imbalance, that rather than presentation and interpretation of these important sites, according to the, the centuries-old views of the locals and the nationals, these were introduced in the colonial period as part, as the roots of European culture. As, so actually, these Egyptians were posing in, our, in, the, in the tourist pictures, they were considered as some annoying detail when a European visited the pyramids and a European visited the pyramids. I mean, I uh, I was asking uh, an older uh, colleague about why the pictures of historic Cairo by the, you know, very early uh, photographs of historic Cairo has no people in it. And the guy was, he was much older than me, so he he lived before the independence. He told me they actually got the police to empty the street for them from Egyptians. And you have all these images of, for example, uh, the locals carrying to locals carrying a lady up to climb the pyramid and all sorts of other things. You're talking about more than one century of subservient culture that produced a totally damaged group of people around that heritage. Now, when you say, is it local heritage? I think, yes, it is a local and it is national and international. But when we talk about local, we need to be a little bit more in depth we stop looking at shallow things. I mean, I think these people, if they were empowered, if they were educated, if they were given breathing space, they will be. They will not be the way they are now. I mean, you don't get the same for people who are living, you know, next to, uh, I don't know, uh, Notre Dame de Paris or, uh, or St. Some, some Peter's in, in, in Rome or something, because they are actually, they are not so marginalized. They are not frowned upon and forced to serve they have their own lives they have their own dignity they have their own values and when you go and visit you respect all that and you enjoy it as part of the whole experience so all that is not happening it is even more uh, reiterated by all the interventions that continue to now we have uh, the grand egyptian museum within the pyramids plateau where all that will be even more and no no consideration. Actually, part of the village that is very close had been bulldozed and they were offered some high-rise buildings in the middle of the desert somewhere quite far so that they don't interrupt the, the tourists. But again, some will produce some kind of shanty town somewhere and become reinforced concrete and become a village or a town very quickly because that's the source of income, that's the source of work, uh, opportunities, and, To are marginalized, who are totally, totally uh, deprived of so many of their rights. And I think the problem, the very I think one of the prob one one issue, really problematic, is that all these international agencies, when they go and they they actually they actually have very good intentions. They do a good work, technically speaking. When they do something by the pyramids or sphinx or uh, grand. Museum, Egyptian Museum. There is a lot of very good intention, and really meaning well. But the problem is that I mean, I I don't blame them that they don't speak Arabic, that they, they are not aware of the inter- Arab uh, 14th century uh, heritage of Arab poetry about uh, the ruins, including the pyramids. They are not aware of the Islamic uh, concept of uh, the pyramids, uh, of the ruins of previous civilizations, including the pyramids. They are not aware of all the issues that are concerning, the main concerns of the people who are living close to the pyramids. I mean, now there is a rumor that the Egyptian uh, government has this huge project. Uh, they nickname it Champs-Elysees, Khofo And basically it's a huge kind of boulevard going from Giza, the, you know, from the built up area up to the pyramids with green and I don't know what, sweeping in front of it. I mean, if this is realized, you're talking about hundreds of thousands will be uh, relocated of people who have been living there, some of them for generations. Again, it's for the picture for the, I mean, like the problem is, is, is really that quite a bit of the problem is not only the international uh, agencies that go there, but of course the corrupt local groups and pe- persons and systems that are so dysfunctional to the point that actually, if you want to do a decent job, it's it's almost impossible because so much of what's happening on the ground there is feeding on the corruption and the approach that is quite insensitive, I would say. There's so much feeding on that that it is basically just technical. You you clean the you clean the stones or you you make a, a good system of I don't know a protection from weathering or this or that, and make a nice visitor center, you know, all these things, which are good, of course, and needed. But, you know, all the other things, all the other aspects, it's not only that the international, I think one reason why international agencies and international projects are not addressing the other aspects, because there is a huge resistance and huge denial on the ground from the locals and from the national levels also of decision decision makers of these of these issues. I mean, sometimes when I speak to an Egyptian colleague, you know, a friend who is responsible somewhere uh, in the decision-making level, he would say, you know, you are talking, are you enemy of Egypt? I mean, why are you talking like this? The reality is not that bad, the reality is good. You know, and he will show you some nice pictures particularly the ones in the night with the beautiful lighting.
0: What you call resistance are vested interests in the status quo. These are ways of doing things that have been done for a long time. In terms of the future, in Iraq in particular we have significant amount of cultural destruction as a result of war, conflict, and of course the Islamic State. We have um, in Iraq, in in other countries, in, in Egypt, you know, cultural destruction as a result of socio-economic development, you know, these large mega-projects. You know, with the kind of changes we've seen, and we're continuing to see, at a very rapid pace, cultural infrastructure of the region is actually changing quite quickly. And we, those who are concerned with what's happening, haven't yet been able to develop systems to even monitor what's happening. I mean, of course, there is the work of Iyamina in Oxford, which I think you worked for for some time um, in digital Archaeology in the Middle East uh, program. The pace of change is so significant that within 10, 15, 20 years, we will have significant amount of cultural loss, which is perhaps unprecedented in, in the history of this region. So what do you think the impact will be? You know, what, what is the long term impact of this kind of socio-economic development?
1: Well, you know, you are right in, in, in your worries. And, uh, you know, when I think of Europe after World War II, all the cities that had a lot of money lost their historic cores for uh, high-rise buildings and, uh, you know, uh, boulevards and so on. And the ones that didn't have much money actually came out in the 70s and 80s with beautiful historic cores That became uh, really very precious. And uh, so it was actually a blessing in disguise that they didn't have enough money to have all these developments the way it happened in other cities. And I think it's unfortunately, it will be, it's going to be the same in the Middle East. Wherever there is uh, enough resources for uh, reconstruction, then the damage will be huge. It's part of the whole. Problem of uh, the Middle East. I mean, when when the Arab Spring in 2011 happened, I became so uh, optimistic because, you know, the whole thing is really tied to politics at the end of the day. So, you know, if I think as far as, it's not only that uh, that there are all these uh, developments, aggressive developments are happening and are pushed forward, but more importantly, the lack of democracy, the lack of freedom of speech, and the lack of equality and justice, uh, it adds to all this, because all that is happening for the benefit of the few. And, uh, and all, the, all those who are marginalized, they, are, they don't have a channel to, to uh, air their uh, resistance or their refusal, or even to present their own interests. Uh, actually, because they are, at the end of the day, they just want to make a living, they become part of the picture and they are happy to help. In all this destruction, not because not because that that's what the their best interests, but because that's that's their only way of survival. I feel that unless there is political progress in the Middle East, the loss will be huge. Because particularly in the Middle East, the intangible is so much more important than the tangible, and the intangible is tied directly to you know, it only can survive within a minimum kind of uh, of, of freedom and of uh, justice, particularly when faced with huge uh, developments that are, you know, have a lot of money behind them and a lot of political power, very strong political power behind them. What I'm saying is that without the minimum accepted justice and freedom and human rights, and it will be very easy to kind of like, tick a box of what really the local community says or wants or whatever. But it's only if the local community or the locals or the people uh, on the ground have equal stand with everybody else if not more because they are the ones who are guardians of that heritage So it's only then that things will work out. I don't want to end it with a pessimistic or uh, such a a dark uh, view. I think one thing aspect uh, I learned from working with heritage is that it's such a a wonderful thing that it is a a living heritage, that it is actually what I call traditional communities, that actually the majority of the people on the ground in these places, they actually, I mean, despite uh, all the problems, and despite everything there's so much worth uh, worthwhile and and could be conserved and could be could flourish because conservation is not freezing so conservation is also allowing so much to go on and develop also but develop in within the parameter and within the values that produced that heritage working between east and west or between uh, the arab countries and europe i think we are privileged, we are more privileged than the West because our heritage is still alive. It's not not a a painting on the wall or it's not a a, a site that fenced and you go and pay a ticket and visit. It's still alive despite everything. So there's a huge value there in comparison to the heritage of industrialized nations that totally give away uh, so much of, of their identity, of their heritage, I'm talking about the intangible and tangible together, not without possibility of, of, you know, separating them.
0: Those connections are still there in terms of continuity, the connections between tangible and tangible heritage, but they are increasingly under pressure because of globalization, conflict, um, socioeconomic change. Is that the point you're making? Is that living heritage is really essentially about people and they and they embody they continue to embody that heritage and they continue to the vernacular which is about the uses of heritage is still alive is still something that is very much present is that the hope that you have that it will that is the the continuity that is the sustainability that is perhaps the future of cultural heritage is that how you look at it
1: the empty half of the glass you would see chaos you would see the lack of interest you'll see the damage the the uneducated uninformed development and so on but if you look at the full half of the glass you'll see that actually there are all these uh, i mean the way the human relationships the values uh, that are within the religious uh, or within the family or the actual the actual culture that produced all this heritage and lived uh, heritage for centuries this culture is still there, but it is manipulated and it is marginalized and it is pressed to a corner so you get out the worst of it, that you see a lot of very bad issues and so on. But one reason for that is that they are not really synchronized with what's going on. And this, they are not synchronized because that what's going on is quite alien, the culture and the, these uh, traditions. So yes, I think despite all that, maybe maybe one country also is beautiful and you, you threatened is Yemen. And you look at that and you look at if you deal with Yemenis, if you go there and it's, you can see that actually Yemenis is probably the most rich, in my opinion, in the whole region, because the intangible is almost as if not touched, almost, uh, despite everything. So, the tangible had been bombarded uh, by the Saudis, and uh, so much is gone because of the civil war and so on. But that the intangible is there, and that is, is so much of the heritage uh, value is in, is is there. Again, it's not if you look at the heritage not as a heritage piece that you put in a, not an antiquity you put in a glass box, but it's a, it's a it's a living you know uh, living traditions and living uh, cultural phenomena they are there and you know they just need to breathe and they need to be given breathing space and allowed to be out of you know all the conflicts the political and military and economic and all that but they are there
0: on that note of hope and inspiration thank you dr Hassan mahdi You've explained many things in very clear, simple ways, which for many listeners have probably a hard time trying to grapple or negotiate some of these concepts. Thank you very much, Dr. Mehdi. I've learned a lot from this conversation.
1: All oh, the best.